Thank you, everybody. This is another edition of uh, Conversations with Dr. Cowan and Friends. And I have, uh, once again, the honor of having Leslie Manukian, who was, I can't remember exactly. I always tell people to correct me, but uh, the producer, direct producer, I guess, of the movie, A Greater Good, The Greater Good, uh, which was a, a really good movie about vaccines. Um, and I just wanna say that uh, some of you may have seen an interview with Leslie about a week or so ago because we did, we did a live uh, uh, interview on Subscribestar, which was meant to be recorded, only that one of us forgot to push the record button and it wasn't Leslie. <laughs> Uh, and, and the amazing thing about it is, I don't know how a few hundred people saw it live, and I got so many uh, requests and uh, then eventually angry, what happened to the video? And I want to show it to my friends, and unfortunately, I had to fess up. So uh, Leslie was gracious enough to agree to do a redo, so that's what we're doing here. So... Um, the, the agenda uh, is uh, basically the same. You know, I, we would love to hear your story, how you got into this, and then what you know about vaccines in general, and then the uh, COVID injections in particular. And something that really hit people was uh, what you're doing now that will help people to navigate what they can do and um, even how to participate in, i.e. donate and help your effort because uh, it's one of the best efforts I know of. So with that, uh, welcome. I thank you and yes. Uh, so if you could start, Leslie, by just telling your story again, uh, how you got into this and uh, then we can go from there. Sure, glad to do it, Tom. And uh, no worries, I've done the same thing myself. So. I'm sure it's happened to most of us yes. um, in some way, you know, we all have those little blips. Um, so I'm glad to be back and even just having this conversation again, it's great to be with you. Um, Thank you. So <laughs> we should also mention that we're on the board of the Weston A. Price Foundation together, maybe just so people know we've been connected for quite a long time, been friends yeah, for probably 10 years or something now. Yeah. Um, and so just going back to my background, um, one of the things that's really, I really like to talk about, and I feel something that gives me a unique perspective on the world and what's happening in the world is that I actually have a background in finance. I have an MBA from the University of Chicago. I worked for Goldman Sachs, and then I went to go and work for one of their clients, Alliance Capital, and managed their European growth and portfolio management businesses and research. Oh, I didn't know all that. Yeah. So I did all that. You were a big shot. <laughs> I actually was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I um, quit, it was really funny. People were like, what are you doing? You know, yeah. you have it all essentially. But I felt empty doing what I was doing. It just wasn't fulfilling me. Um, I felt like I was just pushing myself really hard. And I had some experiences that caused me to reflect on, on what I was participating in. So I was living in London at the time. I'd been there for a number of years and I ended up living there for 10 years and my son was born there. Um, and my health- Was there any specific experience you could point to where you said to yourself, I don't know about this? Oh, I mean, this story, it, it, still, it still makes me sick to my stomach. So I um, was working in Alliance Capital and my job as the director of all of our European growth businesses was to select the stocks from Europe that would go into our global and international portfolios and European portfolios. And it meant that I got to meet the CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world. I even met the US um, companies when they would come through London offices because um, yeah. you were a big shareholder. And so the CEO of one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, who happens, I won't say who it is just because I don't wanna. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, but I will say that it's one of the companies that's produced a COVID vaccine, okay? So you can figure that out. It's one of those four. The CEO comes into our offices and we were the biggest, one of the biggest shareholders in their company. 
betting on a new blockbuster drug that they were bringing out that was in phase three trials, which is the phase that all drugs go through before they get licensed by the FDA and then can make it to market. And the phase three trials, um, there were rumors coming out that people were dying in the trials. And the CEO and the CFO, the chief financial officer and the head of R&D and the head of investor relations, and I forget who else, all came into our offices. And we had this big meeting sitting around a conference table with a um, you know, live speaker to our New York office and our portfolio managers and um, pharmaceutical analysts there, and then our whole team in London, all on this thing. And you were sort of the person they had to convince, right? I was one of the key people, yeah. yes. And so was our pharmaceutical analyst, our European pharmaceutical analyst. and. Um, so the stock was getting crushed. It was down, I don't know, 20 or 30% because these rumors were leaking out. And I will never forget this as long as I live. They came in, they sat down. And the whole reason they were doing this, what they called a roadshow to go and see investors was because they were trying to reassure investors that everything was okay, right? This yeah. is their new blockbuster drug. And for everyone to understand this, when a pharmaceutical company brings out a new, a new drug, in particular one that's called a blockbuster, this is gonna be a significant portion of their revenues and their profits going forward. And that is the reason why investors will buy it because they wanna participate in the future cash flows, profits and sales. Right. And they don't want the old ones that are going off path. No, because it's all about what's happening in the future. The stock market is all about what's happening in the future and what valuations are, okay? So is it expensive on you know, price to earnings ratios, price book value relative to future growth, things like this. Um, and so what happened is he comes in and he says, listen, and I'm not kidding you, straight face. Listen, the bad news, um, you know, well, we've got these phase three trials going on and in very, very rare instances, there've been some problems and some people have died. And he said, the bad news is the FDA is going to FDA is going to make us put a black box warning on the packaging. The good news is we still think we'll be able to do seven billion in peak sales. Wow! And I was like, oh. no one else flinched. I couldn't believe it, but for me, I felt like someone had kicked me in the stomach, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is just wrong. They are knowingly going to kill people. I couldn't believe it, Tom, because even though. Um, I was still very mainstream at that point in my life. You know, this is 22, three years ago. And um, I tried to live a healthy life or what I thought was a healthy life, but I really didn't think that they were that evil, right? I'd never heard someone be that cavalier in their assessment of the trade-off between corporate profit and human life. And I was just sickened by it. And I got up after the meeting, no, and everyone else was like writing down, you know, gosh, this is X percentage of profits and the stock's down this much. We should be buying the stock, right? It's not that bad. Well, I went into my office and I literally paced back and forth for, I don't know how long, a couple of minutes, just like really worked up. And afterwards, opened the door of my office and walked down the hallway to the pharmaceutical analyst. And I flung her door open and walked inside. And she's like sitting in her chair, looking up at me like, yes. <laughs> and I just said, Isabel, this is wrong. And she shrugged her shoulders like, I know, but what do you want me to do about it? And yeah, I just thought to myself, my I just, I mean, that was a really um, pivotal moment for me that wow. crystallized very clearly what I was participating in and it didn't feel good. Yeah. And it drove home other experiences that I had had that had made me sort of question or wonder or read between the lines of things that CEOs have said, you know, when they were talking about how they were so confident that they were going to get a um, contract for the new power project in Indonesia or wherever it might be. It's because they were, they knew because they were probably bribing them, you know, like it just gave me a completely new perspective on the world and in particular, the corporate world. Yeah. And so it, it was no, it wasn't about whether this was good for the world or the planet or people, or it was just all about money. Yeah. Yeah. It was really shocking to me. I just, it lift, it, it, it was one of the things that began to rip the veil for me. And um, I was at the same time actually really sick and I didn't know why or what had happened to me, but I was just getting sicker and sicker. 
when I kept going to the doctor, a mainstream doctor in London, and he finally said, listen, I know you're sick and you know you're sick, but I can't help you. And Western medicine can't help you. You should go and see a homeopath or an acupuncturist. And so I did that. And, and, um, and just tell the story briefly again about why, what had happened when you were well, and then what happened? Well, so I was 28 years old. I just graduated from business school. You know, I had I was going to go start working for Goldman Sachs in New York. And I mean, I thought I had the world by the tail. Everything was great. And I and a bunch of girlfriends went to Southeast Asia for two months. And before we went, one of my friends said, don't forget to get your vaccines. And I thought, oh, I would have never thought about that, but thanks. And I went over to the um, medical center at the University of Chicago, where I got my MBA. And I just said, you know, I'm going to Southeast Asia. I need to get my shots. And I remember the woman said, well, what do you want? And I'm like, what do you want to give me? Yeah, right. I mean, I thought it was a one-way trade. It was only positive that could possibly come from it. Never did it occur to me that there might be some kind of you know, potential downside. And um, so I got every childhood vaccine and every travel vaccine essentially in one day. And then I went back a week later and got another round of my boosters. And within wow. a couple of weeks, I had like, boils on my face and my periods changed, my digestion shut down. I developed all these allergies. And then as the weeks and the months unfolded, it got, I got unbelievable migraine headaches that would last for five to seven days. Multiple and you'd had none of this before. None of it. Yeah. I didn't get boils on my face. I didn't have headaches that lasted for five to seven days. I didn't have sensitivity to perfume or cigarettes or chemicals. I mean, if I smell still to this day, if I smell um, people with perfume, it's overwhelming to me some stuff. I just, I literally have to remove myself. I didn't yeah. have numbness and tingling in my body. I didn't have this like neck stiffness. I, I was able, I could sleep through a train wreck. My mother said, she's like, I used to vacuum around you. And I became light sensitive, sound sensitive, just stimulus sensitive. And, you know, these are all the hallmarks of kids with autism. Essentially. I was an adult who had developed the spectrum of features of autism. You were but, basically poisoned essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then what? So now here you are and say, I'm not, doing this Goldman Sachs thing anymore. Yeah, so well, what happened was, so I'm super sick and I go and um, I, I see a homeopath and she actually changes my life. She starts to help me to, to heal. And, um, and I'm thinking, this is really cool. <laughs> you know, it's all about the mind-body connection and energy medicine. And this is stuff that's kind of blowing my mind, but it's really fascinating to me. And more than anything, it's, I can feel it changing me. I can feel an impact. And so um, I enrolled in homeopathy college, even though I was still this wow. flying executive. And um, the first day in orientation, the um, instructor said, <laughs> you know, over the next three years of this course, we're gonna talk about the mind-body connection. We're gonna talk about uh, obstacles to cure, nutrition, um, vaccine damage, and I raised my hand because I was still clueless. I had no idea that what was going on with me. I had 13 sinus infections in three years and I'd never had one before, you know, just chronic infections and sickness. So um, you at that point hadn't put anything together? No clue. It wasn't until I'd say halfway through making the greater good, maybe three quarters that I really fully started to digest the fact that what I had was severe vaccine injury. That's what I realized. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm sitting there and I, and he says, you know, we're going to talk about vaccine injury. And I mean, I was so naive still. I raised my hand and I'm like, excuse me, vaccines are the greatest invention of humankind. <laughs> and he chuckled and shrugged. He's like, well, that's one perspective and we're going to learn about another. Yeah. And um, after the, um, that orientation, I went out into the hallway and there was a bookstore laid out and there was Neil Z. Miller's book, Vaccines, Are They Really Safe and Effective? And he gave me, he came up, he's like, read that book. Just read that. And I read that book and I literally cried. For the and week. this was when now about? 19, probably the year 2000, maybe. Yeah, 20 years, okay. Yeah, 20 years ago. Um, definitely, it was somewhere in 2000, 2001 at the yeah. very latest. Got it, um, okay. I read that book and um, the next weekend of classes, I took the book 
in my hand and stormed into the president of the homeopathic college's offices. And I was like, how can this be true? I was like partly crying and partly yelling at her. And she looked at me like, sorry to burst your bubble sister, but she just shrugged her shoulders and she was like money. And, um, and I was just staggered by that because that book has over 960 footnotes to the medical literature documenting all these things autoimmune disease and seizures, and neurological disorders and death and autoimmune um, allergies. And I mean, I can't even, you know, yeah. recite the spectrum of things, but over 960 footnotes to the medical literature documenting all these issues from vaccinations going back a century. Yeah. And I just thought in that moment, I literally felt called by God. I seriously did. And I just thought, I knew right then and there that someday I would make a movie about that issue, learn for myself the truth and share it with the world. And so but, that was literally the impetus behind the greater good, which wow. then- but even then you still didn't really put it together. That's interesting. I had no idea that what was going on with me was that. Yeah. Wow. No even, even then, even once you saw all these exact symptoms you're talking about were literally, um, documented to be from these vaccines it still didn't hit it just goes to the depth of the delusion that people suffer from it's unreal tom you know my um, unreal i saw my brother this past weekend and um he he told me about a friend of his who has a child with severe autism and who will have to be institutionalized at some point and my brother once said hey have you ever considered that it might be vaccines and that you could detox and address it and he just looked at him and said don't you ever say that again to me or i you know i'll never yeah. be your friends anymore and you know it's it's i mean i did it to myself so that's one thing but it's got to be incredibly challenging I mean, yeah. just heartbreaking for parents. And so, yes, it's, it's, I think it's twofold is one is the, 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 um, the brainwashing that we've been subjected to for a century about vaccines. And it is brainwashing because we have been lied to since the beginning about their safety, their efficacy, and the extent to which they've been proven, um, you know, to which they've even been studied. So that's one part of the puzzle that it's saved humanity. That's, that's just not true, it's patently false. And um, if you dig into the literature, you'll find that 90% of the decline in disease mortality in the Western world occurred before the advent or widespread use of either antibiotics or vaccines. So that's not what, you know, what it's account, um, attributed to. That's one piece of it. But the other piece of it, of course, is the cognitive dissonance, right? That we can't actually digest this because I think the ramifications are too huge. One, that I might have injured myself or my children. And two, <clears throat> I think the other thing is that who can we trust? If we can't trust health authorities with the health and well-being of our most vulnerable, our babies, then can we trust them with anything? And if yeah. we can't trust them with anything, what does that mean, Tom? Yeah, right. Where We're on our own. It means we are on our own and that you have to be responsible for every aspect of your life. And a lot of people don't want, want that. Yeah. You know, I've often thought the same thing, like one of the things I feel blessed about is in my approximately 37 years of, you know, being a family doctor, as best I can remember, I've given like five tetanus shots, plain tetanus. And uh, by the way, I regret every one of those. Uh, but that's, but I can imagine how difficult it would be if I had been doing normal vaccines and then just to face it in myself that I did that for six months or a year. And you can always say, well, I didn't know better. And you know, you can make up a lot of excuses, but at the end of the day, there's a kind of reckoning and mm. you, there's a certain maturity, you know, a kind of emotional psychological maturity that I don't think most doctors have and they can't face it. And yeah. that's, big part of the problem and so okay parents, so right? who wants to face all of yeah, this yeah who right i don't want to face it i mean I, I think most human beings don't want to face the fact that they actually are responsible for everything in their lives right there's this and that 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 um 
that parent-child relationship is actually cultivated by the media, by the medical profession, by government, um, by education, even by our families in so many ways, right? So many, um, there are so many aspects of our lives that are actually teaching us to be obedient rule followers rather than questioners, you know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. All right, yeah. anyway, so um, forget about that phone for a minute. So, no worries. let me just say, so getting back to like, I wanna wrap this together because it comes back to your first question of, you know, what's my background and how did this all start? Well, essentially, I have this, you know, background in finance, which gives me a perspective on these businesses and also on finance, because I still pay attention to what's going on in yeah. the world. And make no mistake that what is going on in the world in the last, um, you know, 15, 16 months is part of an agenda that's global. And it has a, a and, and some of the roots of it are in the financial systems or the destruction of the financial systems, the impending destruction of the financial systems, because essentially our system is bankrupt. Right. And that's a big piece of it. And then there's also the whole transhumanist technocratic um, agenda um, about enslaving humanity. I mean, that's a real thing too, that's going on. But the reason that I brought up the, you know, the finance stuff is that I'm now a qualified homeopath. I've made this movie about vaccines and I've also got this financial perspective. And I think that it gives me perhaps a different perspective than the average person who's working on this, you know, on yeah. this issue in trying to wake people up because I see uh, the financial part that a lot of people don't. And it yeah. certainly informs my thinking on a lot of it because I'm aware of what's going on, you know? Right. All right. So you go from, so at that point you have this sort of almost revelation, it sounds like that I got to do something about this. A hundred percent. So what, what happens next after that? Well, I first, I had a, I got married and then had a baby yeah. and I chose not to, with along with my husband, we chose not to vaccinate our son. And at the time we thought it was a really um, risky move. You know, we were very frightened about it, very concerned, but we were fairly resolute, but we were, we were definitely concerned. Best decision I ever made that we ever made. He's 18 now and he's just healthy. And, you know, he's just a little rock star of an 18 year old senior in high school. He's a great kid. Um, and what's happened in the last, you know, 18 years is that so much science has come along, right? Especially since making of the greater good because the greater good really catalyzed the whole vaccine movement. And for people who don't know about it, you can find it at greatergoodmovie.org. That's our movie website. And so what happened was I had a son and I was afraid, but I just kept researching and learning and researching. And then I actually, shortly after he was born, I quit Wall Street in order to raise him and to commit my life to doing things that I felt were more beneficial to humanity. And, um, you know, really kind of switch teams, if you will. I felt like, okay, I have this great experience, education and all this, I should be using it for good. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying that I was- Not the greater good, but for, I for real yeah, good. I'm not trying to say that I was using it for bad in, the, in, in my previous, um, you know, career. It's just, a, I felt like I was playing for the wrong team, if that makes sense. Yeah, got it. So I quit and I just kept, gathering more and more information. And it was around 2006 or seven that I met, actually 2007, that I met my film partners, a guy named Chris Polaro, who has since passed, and um, a dear friend of mine, Kendall Nelson, who actually does some work for the Weston A. Price Foundation. Right. And they were both accomplished filmmakers, which is what I needed because I knew making a movie on vaccines had to be perfect, right? It had to have, be the highest quality. So there was nothing that they could possibly um, attack us over, right? It couldn't be something that had to do with the filmmaking, the yeah. production, the editing. And we had a, a Sundance award-winning editor, a Sundance award-winning photographer, director of photography. Chris was a Sundance award winner as well on some of his other projects, you know, and, and we made an amazing film and we won several awards and had great, early media, because I think we caught them off guard. Uh -huh. um, they didn't expect the um, media to be as favorable. And so what happened was we got a really great review from the LA Weekly and a great review from the Wall Street Journal online. And the LA- So they probably didn't expect the level of science that you brought to it, is my guess. And the fairness with which we treated the subject, right? We didn't, yeah. We it was not a, um, 
uh, it was not polemical in any way. It was really, okay, let's let Dr. Paul Offit argue his side and let's let Bob Sears, Dr. Bob Sears argue his side or Dr. Larry Pilevsky. And, you know, we had Barbara Lowe Fisher and then we had a bunch of families. So we had um, Stanley Plotkin and other people. Um, we had so many different perspectives all sharing theirs and we really left it to the viewer to make their decision as to whom they wanted to believe. Yeah. And I think that that was actually um, in some ways far more subversive, right? Yeah. <laughs> to the machine than something that was hit them over the head. It wasn't yeah. like that. And so what happened was we did a theatrical release in Los Angeles and everything was going great. And then two weeks later or three weeks later, we did our theatrical release in New York. And that was when they sicked the dogs on us. And sicking so, the dogs means what? The New York Times um, wrote a, a, a review that can only be described as lies. It literally was lies, distortion, invective. It was horrific. It was a smear. And when we called them out, I mean, one of their things was that, um, that we discounted the... Um, um, severity or seriousness of any of these infectious diseases. We showed children in the first minute, I believe of the film in iron lungs. We showed a baby with measles rash all over. You know, it's like, it was just a complete, it was, it was clearly not written by anyone who'd watched the film. It was a 100% a smear campaign. And so yeah. somebody on our team reached out to the New York Times and said, hey, uh, this isn't accurate. And so then they, put a little disclaimer, they corrected one aspect and they said um, that due to a complaint from the filmmakers, we've you know edited it. Well, that just smeared us further. So then we said, they, um, they wrote, oh no, no, then they wrote that it was because that they had received complaints from readers and we called them out and said, well, which readers? And we requested phone logs and all these things. And then they said, they just basically wouldn't talk to us and wouldn't give us any information. There's a whole chapter on it. I actually don't remember the whole study uh, or the whole story on it, but basically they smeared us. They libeled us, they lied. And of course that's up there now, you know, on their website forever and they can never correct what they did in print, right? And so it was just, it was literally like, we are going to derail them right now. And the problem was that Chris in particular didn't want to call them out because he didn't want to he didn't want to call out Sundance. Sundance, the director of programming wanted our film in Sundance, but her hands were tied by somebody from above. Wow. Yeah, so we were censored by Sundance and, and then the New York Times did this and I wanted to make a big stink about it, but you know, if you still have aspirations of being a acclaimed, an acclaimed filmmaker, then you're less likely to do that. I didn't really care about that. I cared about the you know, just pushing back and exposing what was going on. And so anyway, it's just really interesting. I've just, <laughs> I've so, been censored and smeared by CBS, CNN, um, NBC, I think, if I remember, the New York Times. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. This machine is so connected. People have no idea. Yeah. So anyway, that's really the background that made the film. And then what happened was I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And um, ended up having to withdraw from a bunch of my work about four or five years ago and really focus on my healing. And when I, when I, after I did IV chelation and passed literally buckets and buckets of parasites, then I started doing homeopathic detox of vaccinations. And that was when I saw a massive change in my health. And for me, it was really a, um, revelatory moment because it confirmed exactly what was going on. I mean, I'm detoxing the vaccines and I feel like someone has plugged me in for the first time in 30 years. It was extraordinary. So really. in a homeopathic detox is essentially an energetic form of the vaccine, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. And you take them starting in a low potency and working up. And what it does is it prompts your body to start to clear the problems um, caused by the vaccines. And it was like, literally, I'd take a few drops and I could feel the difference just yeah. from a few drops instantaneously. I mean. So that was another level of confirmation that in fact, what had happened to you and literally what happens to probably millions of people is vaccine damage. And the thing is, Tom, it's so slow. It's so insidious, right? 
people don't realize it. Unless you have the anaphylactic type reaction that is um, you know, quite immediate, um, most people don't ever connect the two. And even with all the work that I've done, I still didn't connect the two or I didn't. At one point I started to connect the two, but I still didn't fully accept it because I didn't want to be some, um, you know, didn't want to be um, sensational or paranoid or anything like that. Right. But when I took those drops and the unbelievable change I felt, it was like kind of hard to deny it anymore. You yeah. can't, you know, right. it's pretty clear what's happened. I've heard you say, you know, if an anvil hits you on the head, it was probably the anvil that did it. Well, it was pretty obvious what happened at that point. And now, I mean, I mean, I was on it. I was, my naturopath put me on her machine and she's like, you are loaded with metals. You have severe vaccine injury. You have, you know, all these other things, but those are the two priorities. And until we do IV chelation, none of it's going to shift. And I'd done every kind of detox imaginable, but chelation is what really switched things for me. And then taking those remedies, it was just, that's when my life started to turn around. And that brings us to the present, which is that I did that for a couple of years and got stronger and stronger. And last year in January, when the whole coronavirus um, uh, narrative broke out, I started, I mean, I said to my husband in January, early January, you watch this, you mark my words, they're starting this in China because they are going to show, China's gonna show the rest of the world how to do it. They could never lock down the West because people would resist. And so they have to do it somewhere where people will accept it in order to frame it as the way to approach this. And then everything will be good in the West. And of course, what happened a couple months later. Got it. So at that point, your overall take on vaccines was what? By January last Oh, they're poison. Yeah. They are poison. I mean, I've gotten, like I said, in the very, you know, when we first didn't vaccinate our son, I was quite nervous about it. Um, In the last 10 years, I've told him not only, you know, should he resist if someone comes near him, but he's under my orders to run, fight, kick, scream, pull hair, bite. I don't care what you do. You get away from them and you do not let them put that in you because they are not what we're told they are. They are filled with all kinds of adventitious agents. We have no idea what they're really doing to the body. Um, we don't. And the I would much rather have a robust, healthy, unimpaired immune system to deal with whatever I encounter in my life than something that is manipulated by a vaccination and altered for the rest of my life. So no, I mean, 100%. And, and listen, the mountain of science. I've heard many doctors say, the issue of vaccination and their safety is no longer subject to debate. It is a fact demonstrated crystal clear in the medical literature, the vaccines injure and cause harm to untold numbers of people. The only thing that is open to debate is how many and why this isn't being um, openly discussed. Yeah. That's the only thing that's really open to debate at this point. Anybody who does a deep dive in the literature is going to be, um, is I, I defy anyone to come to that conclusion who's actually done the 20 years of research that I have. I just think it's impossible. Yeah. Basically, the science is as clear as science ever is. The, these, this is basically, a, it's basically a toxin. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, <clears throat> so that's clear enough. Uh, so then we get to um, the current situation and yeah, run us through, uh, I don't know if we want to get into so much of the financial, but I'm happy to hear about that and what you've seen in the last 14, 16 months. And then especially regards to the new injections, what you know about them and then how people can go about Uh, protecting themselves. Okay. One thing I also want to add is, let's be really clear. I was not anti-vaccine, right? I fully believed in them, but they caused irreparable harm in me. And anti-vaxxer is the moniker that they attribute to people in order to smear them. If I don't want to drive a Pinto, that doesn't make me anti-car. Or if I don't want to eat GMOs, it doesn't make me anti-food, right? We should all be free to question any of these things. And this is just the way that they try and minimize us 
to dehumanize us so that others won't listen to us. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So coming back to, to um, January of last year, as I said, I just, as soon as it started, I was like, oh, I could just see it unfolding. And if I can, I'd really like to talk about something that we talked about when we did this live, which is how do we get to the point where I knew that what knew what was coming in January? Yeah. And when they put out, I think it was within a week or 10 days of the first reports out of China, they then said, oh, um, the virus lives on money for nine days. And then they changed it to 14. And then they said it was 20 something or other. Um, now, this ties back into the financial piece of it. It's really important to people understand this is all about engendering fear in the public for an agenda. So let me go back and talk about how we got here and why those things, how those things come together. So basically, if you look back, if you go back as far as 1980, there was something called the Bayh-Dole Act that was passed. And this was um, an act of Congress that legalized federal employees using, or, or anybody, any researchers using federal funding, um, retaining patents on their intellectual property. That's really important because as it is today, people in Dr. Fauci's group at NIH own patents on the Moderna vaccine. NIH owns patents on the Moderna vaccine, roughly half of the Moderna vaccine which to my way of thinking is a big giant red flag slash conflict of interest that shouldn't exist. But the Bayh-Dole Act facilitated that. So now scientists can retain um, profit, you know, future profits from things that they develop when they are, when, even though they've developed those, that intellectual property or that project, you know, whatever the product might be on taxpayer dollars. Okay, that was a major, major shift. Then 12 years after that in 1992, the Prescription Drug User Fee Act was passed. And this is in a really important um, uh, piece of legislation because what it did was it, it said, well, you pharmaceutical companies, you are users of the FDA and therefore you should be paying a fee to use it. And what we'll do furthermore is charge you extra fees if you want to fast track your products. So this is critical. Gardasil, a vaccine for the HPV virus, human papilloma virus, was um, fast tracked. Even though this original study was supposed to last for four years, they ended up fast tracking it in 15 or 18 months and pushing it to market, even though there was really no, there was no need for it. And there's clearly no proof. I won't go into that. That's just a another di diversion. But basically the point is that this prescription drug user fee act allowed the pharmaceutical industry to start paying user fees to the FDA, in particular when they want to expedite their products, but anytime. And what happened over time is it started out small. And as we stand today, more than 50%, depending on the year, 50 to 60% of the salaries of the drug view reviewers at FDA is paid directly by the pharmaceutical industry. It is what you call a captured agency. The FDA, who do you think they serve? You or the people who are paying their bills, the pharmaceutical industry. Right. So these two things are huge, right? Yeah. Then you fast forward to 9-11. And after 9-11, within 45 days, the um, Patriot Act was passed which allowed warrantless search and seizure of Americans and mass surveillance, okay? Huge violations of our constitutionally protected rights, but that's what it facilitated. And of course, what happened? Well, everyone's afraid. So people were like, well, I'll give up a little freedom for a little bit of safety. Very, very dangerous thing to do as we know. Um, then within a couple of weeks after that, the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act legislation was put forth literally within like two weeks of the Patriot Act. And that was really important because um, this legislation conferred extraordinary powers to state and federal health authorities in the event of a disease outbreak and also to governors, okay, yeah. to, so to the states. And that legislation has been ratified in part or in whole by, I think, 43 states. So you can see where this is going. In 2005, the PREP Act was passed and the PREP Act did a bunch of things. One is it 
vested the power in the secretary of HHS to declare emergencies. It also removed any financial or legal liability from the pharmaceutical industry or any company that produces a product created under emergency use authorization, which means the vaccine makers for COVID-19 vaccines have zero liability. But you know what? The masks are issued under EUA and so are the tests. So even though the tests are um, highly flawed, one might argue fraudulent, um, the, the manufacturers bear zero liability for them and cannot be sued for them. And contain carcinogenic chemicals and God knows what other nanoparticles and metals and particulate 100%, matters. 100% Tom. Both the tests and the masks. So. So now we can see now we've been in this now for 30, what is it, 30 years and we're just working. None of those people have any liability or, or have any uh, requirement to prove that they're safe or effective. No, none, uh, none. So that's 2005, the PREP Act. And the PREP Act is what President Trump declared. He invoked that last year in order to declare an emergency, okay? Um, in what I think it was February when he did it. Um, yeah. Anyway, then you fast forward to 2012 and- And so you, you've been following this for years because it's tied up with the whole vaccine lack of liability as well. Absolutely. So we know that just for vaccines in general in America, they don't, the, the manufacturers don't bear any liability, financial or legal. And, um, or, or um, the doctors. Or the doctors, anybody who administers one. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's something that has been deeply um, uh, important to me. And I've been paying attention to it for 20 years now. And of course, once you start digging in, you start looking at all these other connections. And so you learn about these other pieces of the puzzle. And then along the way, there've also been things like uh, the Vaccinate All Children Act, which uh, Congresswoman uh, Frederica Wilson from Florida has introduced two or three times in the last 10 years, okay? Trying to make it federal law that all children be vaccinated because vaccination laws right now are state laws because that's um, something that that the constitution, that that power was not given to the federal government. It was delegated to the states yeah. in the constitution, anything that related to health rights. And so she's been trying to change that. And the NIH has put out, sorry, the HHS has put out white papers on why every human being should be vaccinated um, for 10 years, 11 years. So I've been following this. And then you get to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is something that is signed every year by the president. And in the 2012 National NDAA is what it's called for short. In the 2012 version of that, that President Obama signed, um, the, um, they legalized propagandizing American citizens. So hitherto, the CIA could propagandize foreigners. So infiltrate their countries and disseminate dishonest, manipulative information in order to affect elections and public opinion and all sorts of things like that. But it was illegal in this country yeah. until 2012. And everybody said, don't worry, don't worry, we're legalizing it, but we're not creating a program to do it and we're not funding it. So they did that in 2013 and 2016. They set up the program and then they funded it. Yeah. And this is so important because it really, if you take everything together, the government can profit off of vaccines they can't be sued about against them. The manufacturers can't be sued. They can surveil us, they can control us, they can lock us down. They can, um, and there's more to it, like the World Health Organization now, its charter was changed in 2000, I think five or seven, in order to make it legally binding on all 194 member states when they declare a global pandemic, their laws, their edicts, supersede the laws of your your um, individual nation states. Right. So all countries have to comply. It's insane. So you can see all this stuff comes together to get us to 2020 and COVID. So when this whole thing started out last year, all of this is in the back of my mind. And I'm like, here we are. Yeah. This is what they've been agitating for, for a very long time. They've been laying the groundwork for it. And it's all the warnings that people have been putting out and been talking about for years and years. Um, on my website, lesliemanukian.com, I actually wrote an, um, a post 
um, last year called the slow march to authoritarianism because I could see very clearly where it was going. And so here we are on the precipice of it. And we know that this is about literally um, getting us to a point where every single human being has a global digital ID, which is connected to their medical records, their vaccine, their vaccine records, their bank accounts, their driver's license, their passport, their voting records, anything and everything of any consequence, all connected together. And it's not for your good folks, it's for control. It's 100% for control so that they can implement a system where you do what you're told or, hey, you can't go and watch a basketball game or you can't go to a concert or you can't go to school or work or buy groceries or go to the library. All right. And Tom, one really important piece about this that's super, you know, we need to understand is that the, um, the, um, the reason that they put that thing out about the currency is because they want to get rid of paper money because paper money can't be tracked. And so this is why they want it connected to your bank accounts, right? So they have to create the situation that scares you away from paper money so that you will accept their solution, which is a digital currency, which they yeah. can delete from your account. Make it move everybody and everything online. Yeah. All right. So what do you know about these COVID ejections? Sadly, more and more, unfortunately. Um, so there are four main shots that are out there being used right now um, in, in the United States and in Europe. Um, in the United States, you've got the Moderna shot, the Pfizer shot, and the J&J &J shot, the Janssen shot. It's a joint venture between the two. And in Europe, um, you've got, I don't know if they've approved the J&J &J shot or if they've just got AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Pfizer. Um, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are mRNA vaccines, messenger RNA vaccines. And the other two are adenovirus vector vaccines, which contain the DNA of the spike protein of the coronavirus injected into the adenovirus, which has been hollowed out to create a carrier for this DNA, which is then delivered into your cells. And the mRNA vaccines deliver their payload, which is... Um, the genetic sequence of the spike protein of the supposed, and we're not going to get into. <laughs> we're for the purposes of this conversation. Let's just assume that everything that they're saying about the virus yeah. and its existence and its structure and all that is is true. Okay, because it's just easier. Yeah. Um, right. No, that's so fine. The, the mRNA vaccine. Um, these vaccines are really gene therapy, right? They're not vaccines in the. Um, in the normal way that people think of vaccines. But the mRNA vaccines contain a single strand of RNA and the um, other two vaccines contain a double strand DNA of the spike protein, okay? So what these vaccines do is that they enter your cells and they deliver their payload of this genetic material. And then they tell your body in the, in the um, mRNA vaccine case, they instruct your body your own cells to start synthesizing the spike protein. And then your body is supposed to mount an antibody response to that, which is supposed to confer immunity on, on you, which is, you know, antibodies are not immunity. And we know that. We know that um, our um, innate immune system and our learned immune system have different roles. And T cell immunity is something that more and more researchers are talking about, which is the um, ability for our system to learn and then remember that we've got this, this uh, um, that we've already been exposed to something and therefore our body knows how to deal with it. And this is why they're saying that 30 to 50% of the public has T cell um, uh, memory and T cell immunity to the virus. And so they don't need anything, right? But anyway, these, the problem with these mRNA vaccines is that you inject this stuff and no one can tell you what happens? No one knows where it goes, how long it lasts. They assume it persists for three days in the cells, but there's no evidence of that. It is a um, assumption. And um, we do know that, you know, all of our, um, that all over our body, we have these receptors for where this supposed spike protein docks in our blood vessels and our lungs and our hearts and, you know, all over the place. And, um, 
we don't know how to turn this off and we don't know what the long-term ramifications are. FDA has issued emergency use authorization for all these products. They are not FDA approved. And under EUA, they are deemed investigational, meaning that they are experimental. And by law, by federal law, we're required to have the option to accept or refuse, but they're being forced on people. So they can cause, cause a huge, you know, a whole spectrum. And then the, the, the thing is, at first, I think people were more concerned about the mRNA vaccines, thinking that they were, um, they were newfangled and different, which they are, because this technology has never been used in a vaccine before. And in all of the um, vaccine trials on coronaviruses that they have attempted in the last 20 years, none of them have made it beyond animal studies because all of the animals got really sick and died when they were exposed to wild virus. So um, these vaccines have actually never been subjected to animal studies, which is crazy given what happened in the past. And then when you look at the J&J and the um, AstraZeneca um, jabs, these are these adenoviruses that have been hollowed out and then this genetic material is injected into them. And um, you know, more and more scientists are speaking out and saying that there absolutely exists the possibility that this stuff is going to enter, um, is going to have the capability to enter into your nucleus and um, insert itself into your DNA, into your innate genetic material and alter you and humanity for eternity. Um, and um, these vaccines we know are causing a huge spectrum of problems. There've been over 2,500 deaths in the United States and many more than that in Europe. Um, over 50,000 adverse reactions reported to the vaccine adverse events reporting system, which is a passive system. So we don't, um, it's, it's not very accurate. And we believe that only one to 10% of all reactions are ever reported because no one's actually actively going out and looking. And right. we know that they're causing- 500,000 at least uh, so far. And, and, and I just want to uh, just say that uh, it, it was a great description you had, although there's so many parts of that science which are actually, <laughs> uh, I would say, uh, bogus at best, uh, including receptors and all that. But anyways, uh, even the point is, people, that even looking at it from a normal point of view, even accepting the nonsense that is passed for virology, it still looks like terrible science and a just a horrendous experiment that has the potential to do unbelievable amount of harm. That's for sure. I mean, you're a physician, Tom. Why, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Why would you ever want to inject something into someone that you believe is dangerous, right? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, does it? And yeah, why would you want to inject question. something that you don't know how to stop yeah. and you don't know what the long-term ramifications are? Right. I just, it, it baffles yeah, it's, me. It, it's, it is, it's, it's, you know, again, the, the, the only thing that people can listening, you know, most of the people probably listening to this have been through this mill for years. So they know this, they know the ropes, but for those who haven't, the question that keeps coming up is how come they don't know this? And how come my nice doctor who's taken care of my family, he surely must know the science. And I can tell you uh, that this, these nice doctors as myself, you know, uh, just let me give an example. Like if I don't necessarily want to get into this so much, but even the question, how does a doctor know there's a new virus and prove it causes disease? A after 35 years, I had no clue how to answer that question. I don't know a single doctor who knows how to answer that question. And so if you, Think about that is, you know, in relation to what the, what doctors simply just don't know. They don't know. They don't know the science. So. They don't know the science. And also, I mean, listen, our world is crazy busy, right? And they do not, I mean, most doctors, what do they see? They have 10 minutes per patient, 15, yeah. right? And I mean, I remember reading it was probably eight or 10 years ago that in 
every single year, there are 250, so this is 10 years old at least, 250,000 scientific papers published in peer-reviewed journals, 250,000. Who could read a 10th of those? Yeah. Read 1% of those. And the thing is the science is moving so fast. There is so much and all of these doctors, you know, so many doctors, um, they maintain memberships in different organizations that they think are representing them and giving them the yeah. latest knowledge or information, the latest thinking on something. And what they really are is those, those things like the AMA and the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Medical Association. First of all, most physicians aren't members, a fraction of them are. And secondly, and most importantly, they take huge donations from the pharmaceutical industry and Coca-Cola and yeah. I mean, all sorts of you know private industry which then has a vested interest in what's in, in what is actually shared with their membership. And so there's just no way it's very challenging for the average doctor to actually know what's really going on. Yeah. All right. Uh, now that let's uh, maybe finish by uh, talking about your organization and what, how people can get help with various COVID and uh, injection related issues. Yeah. So as all this was full unfolding last year, um, uh, I had the great fortune of having an amazing lawyer brought into my life. And I started teaching him about what's going on with respect to the vaccination situation. And this is someone who's been in the law for almost 40 years. And um, he couldn't believe everything I was telling him. And I would say, you know, hey, Hey, George, you know, vaccines, they don't use true placebos in the studies. And he'd say, that can't be true. And hey, you know, they don't, um, uh, there's a special vaccine court that you have to go to and there's no due process and there's no discovery and there's no jury and there's no judge. There's a special master and he would, couldn't believe that. And um, then he would come back to me and say, oh my gosh, Leslie, if you aren't right and somebody's got to do something about this. And ultimately, what happened was I just kind of had another one of those moments like I did about the movie. And I thought, oh, this is what I'm meant to be doing. And yeah. so I um, founded a nonprofit called Health Freedom Defense Fund, which you can find at healthfreedomdefense.org. And healthfreedomdefense.org. Let's make healthfreedomdefense.org. Yes. And the whole mission of Health Freedom Defense, uh, Health Freedom Defense Fund is to um, litigate, well, educate about these health freedom issues that we're discussing and um, protect people's health rights wherever they might be infringed. So we are sending letters, cease and desist letters to employers all over the nation when people are being um, told that they have to get these experimental vaccines. And we are also, um, we're in the process right now of suing the Los Angeles Unified School District um, on the behalf of employees, we're assisting these employees in that venture. Um, they are being told that they can't come back to work unless they uh, use a daily pass to verify their health and be tested all the time and also that they have to be vaccinated. So we're suing them right now. And we have many other big lawsuits in the works. And um, I feel on the one hand, um, it, it, it's really heartbreaking to think about what's going on in our country and about what these people who can only be described as evil have in mind for all of us. But I feel really inspired and empowered by doing this work because these people, you know, thousands of people are turning to us who don't have anywhere else to turn. Yeah. And I really believe that we have the potential to alter this course to the benefit of humanity. And um, so that's what I'm working on. And um, as I said, um, as I've said elsewhere, you know, we we are so grateful for any donation of any size. I mean, ten bucks to give us the give us the website again. Healthfreedomdefense.org, and you can oh, contact yeah. us. You can contact us through there. If you're having an issue um, with an employer or a school or somebody bugging you and telling you that your kid has to have this, I mean, listen. Now, I think it's I don't know if it's up to twenty colleges and universities so far that have already said that they want to mandate the vaccine next year for school, but yeah. we are, we are not going to take this. <laughs> We're not going to take this. We're pushing back. Great. Okay. 
Leslie, I am honored to have done this twice. <laughs> and uh, I want everybody should go healthfreedomdefense.org. Um, take this seriously because uh, I think we all have, we know that we have an ally and a friend. And again, I just want to thank you for joining me and all the work that you're doing. Well, Tom, thank you so very much for having me. And one other little thing I just want to say that that hopefully will inspire people more is that we are working with um, the people at Children's Health Defense. We are working at with other lawyers. I'm part, you know, Health Freedom Defense Fund is part of a global um, group of lawyers and activists who are trying to work for the betterment of humanity. So um, there's a bunch of people out there who are trying to help change what is happening right now. We're not alone. And we're going to win because we have the truth on our side. Got it. Freedom always wins. Does, Tom. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. All the best. Thanks, Tom. Bye -bye.